0: Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork podcast are brought to you by U.S. Soy. The farmers and partners at U.S. Soy are exploring the complex problems and innovative solutions of an interconnected world.
1: Ants won't ruin your picnic. Not with PicNet, the ant trap picnic blanket. While you're enjoying a sit in the sun, PicNet's patented bait and capture system attracts colonies from up to 100 meters away. Scoop and serve then and there, or tear away the capture pouches for ant snacks on the go. This February, bring along your picnic net and let the picnic come to you. Pick up a picnic net at your local Walmart, market, home of the exclusive Monsters of Pickleball blanket series, or look directly into the commerce hole and think the key phrase: picnet. picnic.
0: Oh, oh, wait a minute. This sounds like we were talking about eating bugs.
2: I think this is where we're going to start talking about it. Yeah. I was
0: afraid of this. I know. Brace I don't yourself. I do it.
2: It's going to be okay. I'm Marshall. I'm Amanda. Today on Eating Tomorrow, our long-term relationship with the Earth. We'll face the reality of endangered foods, go for seconds at the bug buffet, and straight up farm. We'll also answer the question, who is in charge of food sustainability? And could they please work harder?
0: In the not so distant future, Flurbert's Neighborhood Market still has the best selection of food at the friendliest of prices. Customers and employees see each other as neighbors. Heck, folks have been known to shop there twice a day just for a little socializing. Flurbert's also has an exclusive relationship with Mendota's Coffee Estate, one of the few remaining after Blight pushed the beloved bean to the brink of extinction. Periodically, and without warning, Flurbert's will announce Limited supply of coffee beans are now available in the produce aisle. Limit 2 bags per customer. First come, first served. And the trampling begins.
2: For me this is basically the apocalypse.
0: Oh god. <laughs> what do we do without
2: coffee? I don't know what I would do without it. It's going to it would be a problem. <sighs> Brace myself. All right. We take for granted that staples of our North American diet, things like potatoes, coffee and avocados are abundant supermarkets are overflowing with them and it's hard to imagine life without them but we're gonna because those foods plus things like cacao chickpeas and wine grapes wine grapes all are endangered and one environmental change away from disappearing from your daily routine For instance, there's really only one commonly enjoyed species of coffee plant, and that one happens to be kind of finicky about climate change and fungal outbreaks.
0: Oh, boy. Well, one of the core issues to consider is our increasing dependence upon fewer and fewer caloric sources. It might seem like we have food diversity because of access to 50 flavors of breakfast cereal, but they're all derived from basically the same ingredients, just three crops, rice, wheat, and corn, account for 50% of the calories consumed by humans. You get to 75% of the calories when you add in potatoes, sugar, barley, palm oil, and our good friend, the soybean.
2: There's this movement called Slow Food that has a project called Arc of Taste that identifies delicious and endangered foods worthy of cultural preservation. Groundnut cakes from South Carolina, peaky bread from the Hopi, kolache from Czech immigrants, stuff from all over the world. All these foods carry forward stories, not just of agriculture, but of the people who made them. The Ark of Taste accepts nominations, by the way, if you want to make sure the floods of time don't wash away something particularly yummy.
0: Uh, let's hope they have two of every meal on that ark. Other groups, like the Heirloom Collard Project, deep dive on their particularly leafy greens, which in this case are a special part of American food culture. And the culture's the point, right? And just because those groups want to give our food history a sort of permanence, that doesn't mean those foods and recipes will be around forever. Like what if our earth no longer produces the ingredients? Gray Area is a San Francisco cultural incubator that hopes to nudge us towards a more equitable and regenerative future, and asks that very question with a workshop called Recipes for the Future, Reimagining Family Cookbooks for Resilience in a Changing Climate. Like what would you keep? What what food do you wanna like make sure it's around forever? I have two. Okay.
2: Spaghetti and meatballs.
0: Got it. We really don't know good. where we
2: don't know where the meat come from, sure. comes from. We don't we don't know where the tomatoes come from. Mm-hmm. Second one, outside the box thinking here. Think okay. Twix.
0: Ooh. <laughs> you know Ooh, what I'm saying? Ooh. You know so what I mean? you get a sweet with the savory. you need. To I do...
2: really I just that's that's a fantastic the, we candy. You need bar. to
0: preserve preserve the Twix. <laughs> Well, one of the biggest sustainability concerns is water management. Simplifying the math a little bit, a single avocado requires over 50 gallons of water to mature. A pound of chickpeas requires around 400 gallons, a pound of beef around 2,000 gallons. And the water we do have is often contaminated by industrial, agricultural, or residential waste, or microplastics. Scientists are still collecting the kind of long-term data that will help us understand the harm of microplastics. But they do know some harmful pathogens can stick to them as they make their way through our water systems.
2: We're humans, after all, and know that influencing public opinion about things like water security isn't about how you tell it, but how you sell it. Mm-hmm. So we talked with Eduardo Marcus, chief creative officer of Publicis Group Netherlands and Belgium, about how his understanding of water management inspired him to sell the water crisis.
3: The research was really scary because you don't imagine how much water is needed to create simple things. And sometimes, like, we see a lot of discussions around the CO2 emissions that are related to the, uh, the, the products we produce, but nobody ever mentioned the need of water to produce that. And for me, that was uh,
2: the most scary part. He shared our concerns about that fluid above all, giver of life, coffee.
3: To make one little cup of coffee, you need 1,500 liters of water. Isn't that scary? How many glasses of coffee people are consuming every second? That's really scary when you see the information about how much water is needed to produce certain products. His team
2: created The Drop Store, a speculative e-commerce site for a world in water crisis. They use this online marketplace to tell stories of scarcity.
3: Every single product you see there is related or damaged or in the shade or with a price affected by a world in water crisis. That's when... We thought that could be more connected to people because what we do every day, we consume products, we go to the supermarket, people need to buy their things, to cook, to consume and to use. So imagine if the things they consume every day were affected by the water crisis so they could actually understand
2: His team goes right for the jugular with products like $89 avocados and pizza pills, floating couches, and undyed low-impact fashion. Ultimately, Eduardo believes that brands have their own responsibility and accountability to the water crisis.
3: I heard one quote uh, last year that was really intriguing. If the government cannot change the world, brands will do. And that's how we can use our creative power, together with financial power from companies, to have an impact in society.
0: Springtime in the city revives al fresco dining, even as the leaves are a week away from their optimal shade-producing potential.
2: This afternoon straddles warm and cool, compelling a confused but stylish mix of bare shoulders and light sweaters, outfits freed from their back closet prisons.
0: It would, under other circumstances, be perfect for people watching.
2: But the only people you're watching is Mario. You're not my type good-looking server.
0: You grab his attention with a look that says, I'm not needy, I swear. But also, please come over here right now.
2: He does, but before he can open his perfect mouth to say something charming, probably, you gesture to the plate in front of you.
0: You say, Mario was it, knowing full well it is, and then my salad is crawling with ants. A dramatic pause,
2: so he can appreciate how hard it is to look good in this in-between weather.
0: Locked eyes.
2: And I ordered my salad with mealworms, Mario. Mealworms. Critical to a healthy food future is sustainable sourcing. As resource scarcity or the climate affect some food sources, others actually thrive. For instance, as ocean temperatures rise, so do the numbers of antioxidant and protein-rich jellyfish, already popular in some Asian cuisines. And time and time again, insects pop up in our research. There's probably one popping up in your shirt right now. Eating bugs goes way back. The Bible's book of Leviticus even gives you a list of do's and don'ts, as it tends to, and is gaining traction based on undeniable nutrition and the sheer abundance of these guys. Insects account for two-thirds of all known species on the planet, are the largest class of organisms in the animal kingdom, and a 2018 study estimated the biomass of bugs is 17 times that of humans.
0: More than 2,000 species of insects are already consumed around the world but for them to contribute meaningfully to the future of food, including animal feed, we need a little organization and a lot of ingenuity. Sarah Schlafly is the founder and CEO of Mighty Cricket, a next-generation protein company tackling the challenges of unsustainable food systems and food inequities.
4: I've learned a lot about cuisines from around the world, and one of the things that, comes up, that came up was that, of the global population, that's 2 billion people around the planet, consume bugs as a regular part of their diet. And this really blew my mind because here in the U.S., no one is eating bugs on a regular basis. And I thought, you know, if 25% of the world is doing this, this might be something worth looking into.
0: As Sarah explored the potential of cricket protein, she was struck first by the light environmental impact. Crickets consume 12 times less feed than beef and can actually be sustained on what we'd otherwise considered waste or food byproduct.
4: And so, when I started doing the research, what I discovered was that insect protein is incredibly resource efficient at turning uh, raw materials into protein that is incredibly high quality for us to eat. It requires, uh, to produce a pound of cricket protein requires 2,000 times less water than a pound of beef.
0: Okay, so cricket protein is good for the environment, requires very little space for farming, but how does it taste?
4: What I've discovered is crickets taste wildly different (laughs) depending on what they're fed. So I've had terrible tasting crickets. And crickets that taste exactly like pistachios. Um, But overall, if you feed the cricket a very neutral palate, a neutral flavored feed, you're going to produce a very mild, slightly nutty tasting cricket. And it goes beautifully in both sweet and savory dishes, actually, because you get that umami nutty flavor profile.
0: Sarah is confident that nutty umami crickets are part of our future food mix, especially once they overcome issues of public perception.
4: One of the things that I envision as we move forward into the future of food is turning the narrative of bug protein as like poor man's food and elevating it to be this superior protein that everyone has access to. Um, putting it out there for the world as kind of a a new spin, a new take on the superfood.
0: Some scientists agree that insects are the next superfood and are eagerly publishing their findings. One species contains protein crystals claimed to be some of the most nutritious stuff in the animal kingdom. Unfortunately, the collection process is pretty time-intensive. There isn't a real infrastructure for its production, and the food might have some branding issues— It's cockroach milk. Oh, no. Not gonna do it. (laughs) Can't do it. (laughs)
2: Despite the protein?
0: You know, I'll eat tofu.
2: (laughs) Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Now, there are plenty of cookbooks and insect recipes out there for things like, wait for it, cricket mashed potato muffins and buffalo worm fried rice these pull bug proteins into our comfortable, everyday palate. But groups like the Copenhagen-based Nordic Food Lab have gone in another direction. They partnered with the Cambridge Distillery to create a unique insect-infused spirit. The red wood ant, it turns out, produces acids and pheromones that react favorably with alcohol, much like aromatics and botanicals. So maybe some better branding this time. They call it anti-gin, Antigen. See
0: how that? That's, that's, that's clever. That's fun. We get drunk an- off bug juice. Okay, Let's do it. What I did it. there? Okay,
2: it's good.
0: <laughs> As the doors closed behind them with a hermetic hiss, the eight original inhabitants of Biosphere Two beheld a paradise of early 1990s engineering. Under the tessellating greenhouse dome they would test the limits of a closed ecological system. No resources would enter from or exit to the outside world. Rather, the scientists, specialists and adventurers would recycle everything produced and consumed. Food and fertilizer, water and waste. For as many days as nature, science and their wits would sustain them, this mission of Spaceship Earth was to be another step in humankind's foray into the great beyond. Perhaps their great-grandchildren, space travelers and Martian terraformers, would look back on this momentous experiment as, wait, is that Polly Shore?
2: (laughs) I forgot about that movie. That's a good movie. (laughs) More innovative and efficient growing and production methods are necessary to address our increasing global food demand. Insect farming can provide some of that mix, as can aquaculture that's farming seafood, and evolving traditional methods. These are some of the moving parts of what's called a circular food system, a rethinking of how we eat. The circle part implies a low or no waste mindset where the byproducts are made beneficial, naturally regenerative food sources, and the ways in which humans participate and make choices.
1: So yes, I think I would want people to understand that it- the system that we have is not inevitable, that it came about from a number of choices, and that it's possible to take to make different choices.
0: That's Eben Cowler, a Minneapolis-based futurist who focuses on our changing food systems. One change he proposes hopes to address those surprisingly fragile commodities we mentioned earlier and the threat to our local food security.
1: It's sort of like a monopony issue in some ways where there's like very few buyers of these commodity products and it kind of has locked us in in a lot of ways to what farmers can grow and who can buy that, what kind of prices they can get.
0: Eben challenges the definition of productive land and our tendency to over-engineer it. Maybe there's a more natural solution out there.
1: The, The concept that even the whole kind of north american continent was in some ways like a whole a a food forest or a food garden it was cultivated over time to be productive. and this idea that like you know you don't you know a forest doesn't get i mean maybe they were managed and it's um maybe a misconception to think that forests are totally wild but you don't look at a forest and say like it's not productive like it's it's so productive
2: you probably think of a farm as a huge piece of land abundant with leafy crops and neat little rows they're a beautiful sight those green acres though are a dwindling luxury especially around urban areas and because we can't build out we might need to build up
0: vertical farming is an environment controlled farming method that grows crops in stacked layers instead of those amber waves of grain it tackles the land problem combines precision farming techniques and could well be the solution to future urban food production. There's just one thing missing—sunlight. These are artificial climates. Farmers can control temperature, humidity, ventilation, and they're lit by LEDs. So if vertical farms are going to dot the city skyline, we've got to make them more efficient than the systems we've already got.
2: Still, in his interview with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, research plant pathologist Dr. Kaishu Ling is bullish on vertical farming, noting— It's possible that vertical farming can take over approximately 50% of leafy green markets in the U.S. and some small portions, less than 5%, of small fruit, strawberry, and tomato markets in 10 years. So, we may yet take urban farming to a whole new level.
0: Quickly tying this back to endangered foods, we might have support for vertical farming from nature itself. In the 1970s, scientists discovered a rare and wild-looking maize in Oaxaca, Mexico. This plant was 16 feet tall and growing in lousy earth. But it had evolved these aerial roots dripping with mucus, which they figured out was how the plant fed itself, extracting nutrients from the air that it couldn't get from the soil.
2: Soil management plays its part in a circular food system, particularly the presence and performance of soil organic carbon. That's basically the stuff that turns dirt into good dirt and has a host of benefits, from nutrient cycling to water retention, even sequestering carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. Overfarming and a changing climate can strip the soil of what makes it good, so a sustainable food future may see both high- and low-tech solves, like integrating livestock and crops— Something our farming predecessors did, but we've since lost to agricultural industrialization and specialization.
0: We're just scratching the surface with circular food systems, which is really more about a mindset than a method. For generations, we've had the luxury of a linear, brute force approach to producing larger and larger yields. But to sustain our food sources, it's time to work harder. Scientists and specialists, even our own U.S. soy growers, are helping shape that circle.
2: Okay, there's some groundwork. So, what can we do about it? Well, there are some simple ways we can adopt that circular food mindset. Eat local to reduce transportation resources, compost food scraps for reuse in your garden, buy and store foods in reusable containers. And those are all good things to do, if you can. But honestly, system level change requires cooperation of industries and governments and their intermediaries. And that's a button you press with your voice and your vote and your wallet.
0: Sharon Satone is the founder and CEO of Edible Planet Ventures. She made a mid-career pivot to move beyond the household habits and into the big leagues. She plays matchmaker and mediator among those players in the food system who might not always play nicely or even know the other players exist.
5: The food system is very complex. And it's not like the pharmaceutical industry where Advil is Advil. And there's not enough conversations between, let's say, I don't know, venture capitalists and farmers. So how do we really transform a food system if we just have a siloed point of view? So at times we might seem presumptuous to go to a farm and say, hey, you should do this, especially on, you know, let's say on the biotech side or extreme sort of technological advances. So that conversation needs to
2: happen a lot more. Sharon noted that her efforts at Edible Planet have attracted like-minded people who believe those conversations are critical to achieving the circular dream.
5: There's a lot of people like myself that, you know, yeah. even though they're running a business, they have to be part of an activist Mm -hmm. and doing what they can. So really, when I started this, there wasn't much, but it's a very
2: collaborative bunch uh, compared to maybe other industries. These collaborators and activists are eager to design a better food system, but ultimately expect the biggest industry players to be held accountable for their sportsmanship. Sharon noted the many hidden costs of food production, a complexity behind which it's easy to hide waste, graft, and greed. In her preferred food future...
5: So I think uh, there's two things. Uh, one is really the true cost of food. So implement true cost accounting overall. And with that, uh, sort of a carrot and the, uh, the stick approach where, you know, if you do good, if you're truly transparent and sustainable and you sort of regenerate our food system, you get incentives. And if you don't, you get super taxed.
0: So yes, You can reduce, reuse, recycle, and demand the biggest linear food system offenders do the same.
2: Special thanks to design firm Sharp and Sour. Eduardo Marcus, chief creative officer of Publicis Group Netherlands and Belgium. Sarah Schlafly, founder and CEO of Mighty Cricket. Evan Cowler, food futurist. Sharon Satone, founder and CEO of Edible Planet Ventures. This is Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork Podcast. A new kind of story about the future of food and how we'll make it. Brought to you by U.S. Soy.